You are now listening to the February 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Today we will be discussing another communicable attribute of God, an attribute that He has chosen to share with us. It is the attribute of the mercy of God. Let's take a look at what the word mercy means. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, mercy can mean having the compassion to someone who has offended you. It can also mean a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. And mercy can also mean compassionate treatment of those in distress. Notice how the word compassion is in all three of these definitions. When we studied the compassion attribute of God, we learned that compassion means a feeling of wanting to help someone. God wants to help us, and in His compassion, He has mercy on us when we sin, which is an offense to God. In other words, when we sin, we offend God. Yet in His mercy, because He wants to help us, God forgives us. Although justice demands that the wages of sin is death, God's mercy paves the way for eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is merciful. Out of his love and goodness, God's mercy holds rightful judgment against sin and evil to allow the salvation of those who come to him in faith. In other words, in God's mercy, we do not get what we deserve, which is punishment and death. Instead, our merciful God gives us forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. So God has mercy on us and forgives us when we sin against him. Now let's think about how we show mercy to others. There is a perfect example of this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, One who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him 
and forgave him his debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Jesus portrayed a very strong picture about showing mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In closing our program for today, I ask you to reflect on a time you withheld mercy from someone or someone didn't show mercy toward you. How did this lack of mercy affect you? Maybe this is something you need to bring before God. Until next time, God bless you and goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we had a great conversation on how does endurance produce trust? We also talked about how God releases his loving kindness only after times of uncertainty. And lastly, we talked about what God does practically in your life when you choose to trust Him. And on today's podcast, we're going to discuss certain things that distract us from that trust. What exactly are you distracted from? And what are you distracted with? Maybe it's things like beauty and athletics, or maybe it's the security of our military. Maybe it's money or even the depravity of our own heart. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. All right, guys. Well, we've been talking a lot about things to put our trust in. What about some things not to put our trust in? Ed, you, you came up with this idea of weapons of mass distraction, and I, I like that quite a bit. Can you say more on that? <laughs> well, it was just, just my way of saying that, you know, these other things, when you trust in something other than God, 
number one, it's a weapon of mass distraction that the enemy uses and your flesh uses and the world uses. And that's what they want, especially the world, what we're hearing in the media today and all that. I don't want to be negative here, but you got to be very careful of that stuff. you got to sort through it because, in a sense, to many people, it is a weapon of mass, first of all, distraction. Distraction which, from? Uh, distraction from what? Hearing things that aren't good or yeah. what? What the truth, right? That's what yeah, I was distraction too. from the truth, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and ever you hear about fake news and f- fake news come from fake views, and so you don't want to get that into your spirit. So the distraction, if you listen to it long enough, becomes a weapon of mass destruction, and that's why we wrote this book. So many people have fallen for those things, and right. now their lives are like destroyed, you know, and they're looking for answers, and so. Uh, we just want to bring everything back to that one verse, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. So, you know, in the book we talk about Psalm 135, 15 through 18, and it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all. Who trust in them. So we have, we've talked about idols in past podcasts. Uh, here we're just going through the list of distractions that take us away from the truth, from who we're supposed to be trusting in. And here he says, these are idols that the nations make, and certainly silver and gold, you know, where my treasure is, that's where my heart is. And so uh, many times we can see where uh, our heart is from what we're putting our money towards. Somebody said, let me see your checkbook, let me see your calendar, and I'll tell you who you are. And so uh, that's just one of the distractions. And then, you know, we go on and we talk about beauty. And earlier before we started this podcast, we were talking, Ed, about how important that is in this day and age with every magazine cover, every commercial, everything is about beauty and the outward, and God is so much more concerned about the inward. But one of the distractions I think that happens in our world is it squeezes us into its mold to the point where we're thinking, well, maybe I should, you know, do this to my outward uh, body, whether it be a facelift, whether it be, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too, I mean, I know the women are going to really have a hard time with this, but I'm just saying that the ultimate beauty, even in Scripture, says it's the inner beauty of your soul. In Christ in you is the hope of glory, not the faith lift in you or the Botox in you. That's right. That's a, that's a, that's a broken cistern that holds no water because age has a way of— no Catching up? What, Are we finding it, that it, out, it, guys? It, it, it catches <laughs> up with us. It catches up with us. And you can do a few things, but all those things, if you see, the more you focus on them, the more it makes you, in, you into its own image. Right. You become what you see, in mm. a sense, you know. Um, and so the more you focus on that beauty thing, and you watch all your friends, and then you've got comparisons going on. I mean, I, sometimes in, when I look at Facebook, I'm, especially the youngest, the young people, and I, you know, and I understand you're young, mm. and so forth. And I think it's great that you're beautiful and all that. But uh, to the extent some of them are just naturally beautiful, and then they take it to this whole other realm. And right. what happens is that that stuff is a wonderful servant. We've said this before: wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Mm. And pretty 
soon, if you don't manage it, it will start managing you. The so, tail will be wagging the dog. I'm thinking, Polly, you, you know, you're the woman in this group. Help us know what does it feel like? What is the pressure that mm-hmm. happens with these kinds of things? Well, a woman's looks are, especially when she's young, are so undeniable and kids can just be so um, so judgmental and so cruel to one another. Mm. And they have a way of picking out the weakest point in somebody's looks. So if you have a big nose or you have unmanageable hair or you're too short or you're too tall or you're, you're overweight, you know, there are always things that they will pick on. Your feet are too big, you're too clumsy, all of those kinds of things. And I had a friend when I was younger who turned heads. She was so beautiful. And um, we just had our 50th high school reunion this past summer. And uh, uh, on Facebook, the guy who was organizing the reunion was trying to find this friend because she would sort of dropped out of sight. And I managed to track her down and learned that she is living in her car on the street in absolute poverty. Like she's, there's nothing to her life anymore. And um, her looks (laughs) aren't enough to carry her through life. And they kind of set up a false expectation of everything will always go my way because I'm beautiful. Just Mm. like for a guy, you know, the young athlete who is the star of everything, you know, everybody is so, uh, looks up to him and is jealous of him because he's got all this natural ability and everything comes easily to him and the teachers give him the grades and they overlook other shortcomings in his life because he's a good athlete. But how far will that actually carry him through life? And I I think we have a lot of things like that we put value on and sort of worship as a culture that ultimately will just let us down. So another one is weapons, uh, you know, and certainly in the world, force and specific uh, physical weapons can be something that we put our trust in. Absolutely. And you see this, you know, trusting, basically this saying, you know, you're trusting in your military Mm -hmm. to save you. Yeah. And boy, we, you know, that's a big issue in the United States where, where, you know, we love our military and it does, it is a great thing, you know, but, but it's, it's a servant, not a master. It's, Mm. it's not what we, we, you know, put our trust in. We trust in the Lord. There's some countries that, you know, in the past that have had the greatest military ever and uh, it didn't work. It didn't work for them. They just, everybody thought, oh, we're secure, we have that, we'll be okay, we can do whatever we want to do. And then all of a sudden, what you're putting your trust in, the the interesting thing about this is that you understand there's a verse that says that thou shalt have no other gods before me, that's the Lord speaking. And so when you make the military or your beauty or um, other idols and gods your kind of your object of worship, what you just did is you just obligated God to kill Mm -hmm. it. To kill what you love, You've, because he says, "Thou shalt." He's a jealous God in a positive way, in a godly way, because he only wants your best. Right. And so, when we move our worship from God to our military, let's say, for example, or our beauty, as Polly just said, 
it's that's a trap because now you've idol is the object of ardent worship you're putting your trust in it your beauty like that um, lady Polly that you said that put all her trust in her beauty and somehow that was just going to pave a way for her. she depended on that and look what happens God just made it so that he wants you to trust in him mm-hmm and because, you know, and the only thing worse than many times to many people, the only thing worse than trusting God is not trusting in God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then the next one we talk about in the book uh, in chapter 11 is oppression and humanity for riches or unrighteous monetary gain. And again, our whole society is based on dealing with uh, whoever has the biggest bottom line, that's the one, you know, whoever has the most uh, big toys wins, you know. And so putting our trust in human riches and the unrighteous monetary gain, uh, some people get the ability to have a lot of, quote, freedom within the world system because of, um, you know, money can't buy you happiness, money can't buy you love. We heard that one from the Beatles. But uh, uh, it can give you a lot of options, and sometimes we end up putting our trust then in that which gives us those options uh, and to the expense of other people sometimes because if I'm first, if I got the most, then I can control you. And uh, one of the things I have to tell businessmen when I do counseling with them is these people around you, these 200 people that you are president of, they are telling you good things and only good things because they want their job. But I'm not here. You asked me to come help you and see your blind spot, and you can't pay me enough to – I'm going to be telling you the truth. And many of them ask for more truth. Because nobody's telling them the truth. Everyone's saying, thank you so much. You're great. Oh, you're just so wonderful. Uh, But then they get home and their wife is not quite saying the same thing. Even (laughs) though they have all those riches and they have all this power and all this money, this woman that you gave me, (laughs) you know, why isn't she? Well, she's not one of your employees, brother. Your money isn't going to get that control. Where you really see this in kind of my world, Alan, is, you know, in traveling through the nations in mm-hmm. Africa, you have all these dictators that are, what they're doing is they're trusting in corruption. Mm-hmm. This is actually the idea of this verse. And, of course, they were dealing with it back then, too, as we are today. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing corruption. It's, you, you would think in all this day and age, corruption would be going down. When actually in the United States, as well as some of the great countries that I go to in Africa, I've been to 22 countries of Africa, mm-hmm. but you have these people and they're trusting corruption to keep them in charge. Right. And the whole the, the character of the king permeates the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So what you have, that when that king's corrupt, everybody else, mm-hmm. it, it, there's an influence there. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that everybody will be corrupt, but there's a strong influence to be corrupt and they're trusting in corruption and wow the problem with corruption is that it's inefficient Mm -hmm. the number one killer of nations is inefficiency period Mm -hmm. inefficiency everything that god gives us is created to cause us to be more efficient more efficient in our body more efficient in our soul and more efficient in our spirit Mm -hmm. well i think of ancient israel and how god gave land to each one of the 
tribes when they moved into the promised land he said this is where the tribe of Dan is going to be and this is where the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and every tribe had their land and every family within that tribe had their land and they all knew whose land belonged to whom and that was why it was such a crime when an evil king looked over his fence and said, oh, I want this vineyard, and he took it away from the person who owned it because God had said that that land, it was God's choice to give that land for eternity, basically, to this particular family so that every family would be provided for. And if for some reason a family had to sell their land or um, get rid of it for some reason, then every 50 years there was a year of jubilee and everything was supposed to revert back to its rightful owner and put everything back in place. And that was God's plan, was for everybody to be provided for and nobody to be Mm -hmm. ridiculously (laughs) wealthy and, and other people to be terribly oppressed and living in poverty. So the next one is lying or cheating. Nobody's ever done that. Uh, Isaiah 59, 4 says, No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And uh, some of the folks that I deal with in counseling, if their lips are moving, I know they're lying. Just mm-hmm. because of the addictions and the things where, you know, I'll have a wife that's telling me, yeah, he says he's not doing the porn anymore. He says he's, he's not going to the massage parlors. He says, and I said, do you see the evidence of that? No, but he says it. Well, I say, believe what, what he's doing. So when you see the receipt and you hear him say, I'm not doing it anymore, or you smell a fragrance on his jacket, because he's been with somebody, and you know the truth is he's been lying. And, uh, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. And for some people, they've grown up in a culture, in a family of lying and cheating. They know no different. And um, so when I get them 20 years later, and the furrows in their life are so deep, it's so hard to get them to turn around. And you know what I've found is the solution here has to be other people. I mean, we need the help from other people. What we've found, especially in sexual addiction, is a group, a support group, a counselor, and a friend. Those three ingredients can help turn someone who's been lying and cheating for all their life can start to turn the tide. But it's a process, and, and that trust, again, needs to be in not only the Lord and his word, but he gives us people in the body of Christ to be able to be connected with so that we can change that, that lying spirit. I think lying specifically, guys, is one of these things, too, where we can't look more wicked to, especially though if we call ourselves a Christian, than when we lie because we we resemble Satan himself, mm. who is the father mm-hmm. of lies. Mm-hmm. We resemble him so much when we speak those lies. Yeah. And, we, and we live in this culture of lying, like you mm-hmm. said, Alan, 
That is flat out wickedness. Yeah. He's the father of lies. Right. I mean, that's yeah. a, I mean, he, he's the father of lies. He's right. the author of, of that whole thing. And the thing with the lying and cheating or any of these things is at first they don't affect you. At first, you know, it looks like it's working. The beauty thing, the lying thing. Mm-hmm. The, oh, man, I've, I've been here two years. Everything's totally corrupt. But look, I'm wealthy. And, you know, but that little, it's like planting a seed. You've planted mm-hmm. a seed. It'll take a while for that thing to grow. It's, we've gone through this, the, the, the sowing and the reaping root, the and shoot, then we, the fruit, right. you know. And we right. reap in a different season. Yeah. So we sometimes it looks season. good right yeah, now. And that's the stuff it will sneak up on you. And the Beatles would say Maxwell's silver hammer will come down <laughs> yeah. on your head, okay? Well, so I think of kaboom. shame. Shame is being uh, such a root of lying. And wh- mm-hmm. why do we, we feel shame? Mm-hmm. Because we're trying to hide something from God because we're, we're not trusting that God will accept us if we tell the truth. We don't think that the other person will accept us if we tell the truth. And we feel shame. So we make up a story that sounds better to us. We try to cover up just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They tried to cover up. Mm-hmm. So the next one is riches. Sort of talked a little bit about this, but Jesus tells the story of the wealthy farmer and he says, you know, the ground of a certain rich man produced a, a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I, I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And so he's trying to tell us the greatest riches in Proverbs. It says, seek uh, wisdom as silver and gold. And uh, again, where your treasure is, there is your heart. And if your heart is based in mammon, then there's going to be destruction. And if it's based in uh, God and you're laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth, where moth and rust can steal and where thieves can break in and steal. So if my, my treasure is what I see, hear, taste, touch, smell only, then it's, it's going to lead to destruction. You know, it's one of those those things, the reality of when Jesus says, look, guys, you can only have two masters. Mm. You can either have God or you can have a small G God, Mm -hmm. right? In the context there, he's talking about money, but you can have it, but he's, he's serious about that. We kind of look at that and go, "Mm, you know, yeah, I get it. Right. But the older that I get, Alan, the more I realize God's not messing around with that. Mm. He is the one true living God. Amen. That's great. So then we have houses and buildings, and again, it sort of runs together, these things. I mean, because if you have riches, then you have houses and buildings, and then, and you know, that's a great place to have shelter. He says, with food, clothing, and shelter, there will I be content. And yet, when we start putting our trust in the houses, uh, the book of Job says, he trusts in, in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it. But it does not endure in Job 8.15. And, of course, Jesus said, build your house upon the rock, not upon sand. And so our trust can't be just in that physical uh, place. 
And uh, I can't help but think, I mean, HGTV is like pretty big uh, in most uh, homes. And what can we do to this house to make it better? And there's nothing wrong with having a beautiful house and having a place to house people. But it can't be the Lord. It can't be the master. And sometimes we keep getting bigger houses, bigger, bigger, and and pretty soon you have this couple that's you know doesn't have any kids anymore and they're in this beautiful house but nobody's there to fill it and it's just the wrong uh, motivation mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the need is is to lay up our our treasures in heaven use those things I've I've had a couple of people in my life that I've seen have beautiful big houses and they use them to fill them with people and share the Lord and have an eternal purpose. And I think that's what we're talking about here. We just don't want the, the things to rule us. So we've gone over several things here not to put our trust in. We actually have a couple more. We're out of time. I, w- I want to end on this one last thing here. We hear people say all the time, I'm going to trust my own heart. <laughs> I'm going to trust my own heart, Ed. What? Should I be doing that? Well, uh, your heart, your own heart, that's what we call the flesh nature. Oh, <laughs> okay. man, and the flesh has basically one purpose, and that is me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so basically your own heart, your own feelings, those types of things. You, get, you know, it's wonderful. I think the flesh can even be positive in the sense, here's a lion, chase, lion let's say, who's chasing you. And your flesh says, get out of here. You know, that's not a bad thing, okay? But your flesh also, it wants your way all the time, your way. And, you know, and that's what, that's this whole thing about moving from the flesh to the spirit. You know, I'll just finish up with this idea. You know, the, uh, the spirit always says, Jesus is Lord. That's in 1 Corinthians 12. The spirit never says that idols are gods are Lord or weapons are Lord or oppression for gain is Lord or lying Mm. or cheating or riches or houses or your own heart or other people or your own self-effort is Lord. It always says Jesus is Lord. When you can get into that space, I'm telling you what, all the other things will be added unto you. You'll Mm. have the Lord established and then uh, the rest will just follow that. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delf at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, 
Let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Waging Spiritual War. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. We got a lot of ground to cover today. And the reason I have you in two places is because I want to set up what we're about to read in 1 John 4. And hopefully you have notes uh, both here with if you'd like. So I just want to jump right into the first truth that's in those notes that I want you to see and hear from God's word today. So here it is, number one. There is a spiritual world all around us. So I happen to be in 2 Kings in my personal Bible reading right now, and I wanna show you a story there in chapter six. So the story is about Elisha, who was a prophet of God, meaning he spoke on behalf of God, and he's described in this story as the man of God. So pick up with me in verse eight. This is a great story. Second Kings chapter six, verse eight. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Follows the king of Syria would make plans in his war with Israel. Then God would reveal those plans to Elisha and Elisha would tell the king of Israel. Kind of unfair, right? Naturally, this did not make the king of Syria very happy. So verse 11 says, the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who, is, who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the traitor here? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So king's advisor's like, it's not us, it's Elijah. So the king says, verse 13, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city where Elisha was. Now listen to what happened. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? So the servant's panicking here, wakes up Elisha. What are we gonna do? There's a whole army surrounding us. Elisha says, verse 16, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now pause there for a second. Elisha said, don't worry, there's more of us than them. But get the picture. There's two guys in the house here, Elisha and his servant. There's a great army with horses and chariots out there. So if you're Elisha's servant, you're thinking, the old guy has lost his mind. Like he may be a prophet, but he's no mathematician. There's two of us and a whole lot more of them. Well, listen to what happens. Verse 17, Elisha prayed. And said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. Follow this. Elisha prays that God would open his servant's eyes to see the spiritual army, horses and chariots of fire surrounding them. And in that moment, the servant sees. He gets a glimpse of the unseen world. And it totally changes his perspective. He realizes that the army of Syria is indeed outnumbered, not physically, but spiritually. So in that moment, for the servant, the invisible became visible, and everything changed. Listen to what happened. When the Syrians came down against him, verse 18 says, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, this is not the city, follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. What happens in the rest of the story is Elisha leads the Syrian army straight to the king of Israel where all of them are immediately captured. So here's the point. And here's why I want to share that story from the start today. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot going on around us that we do not see. There is a spiritual, invisible world around us that is just as real as the visible world. Yet, it is far more powerful. Bible teaches there are vast numbers of angels, both good and bad, spirits that exist all around us. There are glorious beings right now that would take our breath away if we saw them. And there are evil beings that would horrify us right now if we could see them. And to most of our minds, that sounds crazy. Like we live in a rationalistic, naturalistic Western mindset that explains everything by what we can see. Science, technology, to say you believe in the existence of angels and demons, spirits, is like saying you believe in dragons and elves. In our worldview, if you can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, it doesn't exist. I mean, seriously, how can you believe a, a supernatural spiritual God controls thunder and lightning when meteorologists can use satellite pictures and computers to predict storms a week before they even happen? How can you say there's a spiritual tempter engaging our wills in a battle of good and evil when we all know it's the configurations of our DNA or our family history that lead us down certain paths? Our worldview has deadened us to the reality of the spiritual world. We see spiritual explanations of anything as total religious fancy. Because there are many places in the world where I would not have to do a setup like this for 1 John 4 because they know there's a spiritual world around us. God has enabled us to learn how to put the right things together in accordance with how he has created them. And when we do this, supernatural God gives us good crops. Science is our natural observation of the way a supernatural God has made the world. And all of this scientific order is maintained by his great sustaining power. The fruit we see in science is ultimately the work of almighty God. But that's not how we think. We don't see the spiritual realities that oversee and undergird and infiltrate everything, which is what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. Think from the very beginning, Genesis chapter three, spiritual temptation led to physically eating a piece of fruit. Think the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter four, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, 
gives a clear spiritual picture of physical reality. This is all over the Bible, cover to cover, which means, catch this, if you don't believe in the invisible spiritual world, then you are rejecting the Bible. And not just the Bible, you're rejecting Jesus himself. Jesus believed in angels, demons. His very conception was announced by an angel, as was his birth. I just mentioned he was tempted by the devil. He was served by angels after his temptation. He could have appealed to legions of angels at the cross. Angels were present at his tomb after he rose from the grave. They were present when he ascended into heaven. To ignore or disbelieve the spiritual world is to ignore or disbelieve Jesus himself. And here's the danger. I think most of us, even as followers of Jesus who believe the Bible. We're all involved in a spiritual war all the time. Ephesians 6 in the Bible could not be any clearer. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this, this is where we need to see the all-encompassing nature of spiritual warfare. It touches every area of our lives, our marriages, our families, our relationships, our church, our work, our neighborhoods, our communities, our city. There's no part of our lives or this world over which the adversary does not want to influence us. We need to see the conflict between the true God over this world and the false God in this world. It's raging every single day in how we spend our time, how we use our money, what we look at on our phones, how we raise our kids, the tone of voice we use with our spouse, what we do when we think no one else is watching. Every single aspect of our lives at every moment. There's a little G God in this world set up against the capital G God over this world and the little G God in this world, hear this, wants to wreck your marriage wants to wreck your kids, destroy your relationships, steal your purity, compromise your integrity, and at all costs prevent you and me from spreading the good news of eternal life to those who are on a road that leads to eternal death. We are all involved in spiritual war all the time. You just think about the way the Bible talks about our lives as a constant struggle against sin, Hebrews 12, 4. A war within our souls, 1 Peter 2, 11, where we're contending for the faith, Jude 3. Struggling for the gospel, Philippians 1, 30. Fighting the fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6, 12. 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is just a sampling of how the Bible describes our everyday lives. We sometimes think that spiritual warfare happens when there's something out of the ordinary going on, when the reality is your involvement in this spiritual war began the day you were born. You cannot ignore this war. The Bible doesn't say, ignore the devil and he will flee from you. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You try to avoid this war, you sit back in a lazy, lackadaisical, comfortable, cultural Christianity, pretending like there is no struggle to be had or war to be fought, then you will not stand. You will waver, you will falter and fall because our enemy, so this is the third truth, our enemy in this spiritual war is strong. This is where I want to jump into John chapter 4. That background, hear the next part of 1 John. And as you do, you're going to notice how John assumes what we just saw. He assumes a spiritual world and spiritual war at work around him and Christians he's writing to. So listen to 1 John chapter 4 verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit 
but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Did you hear that? The Bible's talking about spirits that are not from God. The spirit of the Antichrist set up against Christ. The spirit of error in the world. The Bible says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Don't miss this. God is telling us in his word right now that there are spirits that come from him and there are spirits that come from the devil and that those that come from the devil are many. So our enemy in this spiritual war, follow this, is pervasive. He's pervasive. You hear the language. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not a few random outliers here and there, but many. They're everywhere. I would say that without question, the overwhelming majority of spiritual teachers in the world are false teachers. Without question, the majority, overwhelming majority of spiritual teachers in the world are false teachers. And I'm not just talking about non-Christian teachers. I would include many professing Christian teachers in that category of false teachers. Because our enemy is not just pervasive, he is deceptive. He does not appear with red tights and a pitchfork in hand, announcing himself as the deceiver. That's not how devil tempts us. He comes in much more attractive ways than that. Think Genesis three, when they saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise. They took and ate. There are all kinds of things, ideas that look good in this world that will steal you away from God. Which is why the Old Testament is filled with stories of false prophets. New Testament filled with warnings against them. Jesus said, beware of false prophets, false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15. Paul warns of being against being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4, 14. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 7, James 1, 16. Paul tells pastors in the church, Acts 20, 29 and 30, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. So from among you as pastors will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We have entire books in the Bible, like 1 John, 2 John, 
Second Peter, written for this purpose. Our enemy in this spiritual war is strong. He's pervasive, he is deceptive. And oh, just a side note here, one of the things that's so frustrating about the way the enemy works is, well, he works to keep many of us from even acknowledging the spiritual, which we've talked about. But then when we do acknowledge the spiritual, the enemy tempts us to think and speak and act in all kinds of weird ways about the spiritual. So Paul says at the end of Ephesians 6, in light of spiritual warfare, pray in the spirit of God on all occasions, all the time. So this is just one example of many. Beware deception, even as we think about spiritual warfare. Now, all of this can cause us almost some frustration to say, well, how do we know what's right and true and good then? And that question leads to the fourth truth. And it's the main point of 1 John 4, 1 through 6. So our enemy in the spiritual war is strong, but our weapons in this spiritual war are stronger. The whole point of 1 John 4, 1 through 6 is to make clear that we don't have to be confused here. We don't have to be deceived. And ultimately, we will not be defeated spiritually. If we do these two things, are you ready? This is the key. 1 John 4, 1 through 6 teaches us our enemy in the spiritual war is strong. Our weapons in the spiritual war are stronger. So number one, we test. So test. That's the clear command God gives us in verse one. There are spirits from God and spirits from this world. And we need to know which is which. So we test. It's a word in the original language of the New Testament used to describe uh, determining the purity of a metal, examine something to find out its quality and its origin specifically. Where does it come from? From God or not? The Bible is saying, do not believe every spirit. Test everything you hear, including what I'm saying right now. So some of you thought, when I said earlier, the overwhelming majority of spiritual teachers in the world are false teachers including many who profess to be Christian teachers. Some of you thought, well, who are you to say that? And the answer is, I am nobody. The Bible is telling you to test everything I say. Examine everything I say. God is telling you to test me and every other pastor you hear, every Christian or non-Christian book you ever read, every conference you ever attend. Test it all because everything you're hearing is either from God or from the devil. And it's critical for you to determine which, especially in the church. That's why Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. And then he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is so dangerous. We are all prone to listen to what we want to hear to turn a deaf ear to that which we don't, to listen to what suits our preferences and our passions and our lifestyles and our loves in such a way that we will turn a deaf ear to the truth. I was reading 1 Kings this last week about King Ahab surrounding himself with lying prophets who would tell him what he wanted to hear even when it would lead to his death. And I thought, is this not what we've done in our church culture today? We have sought out teachers who will tell us what we want to hear, who will make us feel fine about idolatry to money, sex, comfort, safety, all the while calling it Christianity when it does not square with the word of God and the teachings of Jesus himself. I'm pleading with you. More importantly, God is saying to you, test everything you hear and everything you think. So this is where I want to pull in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, one of the most quoted verses on spiritual warfare. 
yet most misinterpreted. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And many people stop there and start talking about spiritual strongholds, how we can take them down in this way or that way. All kinds of crazy talk that leaves this text behind. Because the next verse says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Did you hear that? Where does spiritual warfare happen? It happens in our minds. Where arguments are made, opinions are raised against the word of God. So how do we fight spiritual warfare? By taking every thought captive to obey Christ. This is spiritual warfare. Examining our thoughts, everything we think. Just think practically. I was having a conversation with somebody this last week. They were saying, they're just feeling beat down in their sin, saying, I don't think God loves me. I don't think God will forgive me for my sin. And I stopped and I said, wait a minute. I want you to take that thought and just ask a question. Is that from God? Where has God said that he does not love you? Where has God said that he will not forgive your sin? That's not from God. That's from the devil. So don't believe it. That's spiritual warfare. And it's happening all the time in all of our lives in all kinds of ways. You think about it, sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, their sin started way before biting into a piece of fruit. They thought, maybe God isn't right. Maybe this tree is good. I know better than God. That's where the battle was lost. So spiritual warfare is a testing of everything we hear, everything we think, asking, is this from God? Which leads to the question, well, how do you know what's from God and what's not? That leads to the second word here, trust. So test and trust. And specifically in 1 John 4, we're pointed to the exact same place 2 Corinthians 10, 4 pointed us to, Jesus. Trust in the truth about God's son. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This was the primary problem John was addressing in the first century because you had people teaching false things about Jesus. And well, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later, the same problem exists. In generation after generation, Satan seeks to twist and distort people's understanding of Jesus. And if we do not have a right understanding of Jesus, then we will not have a right understanding of life and the world around us. Not just the Christian life, but life. I wanna make a bold statement, but I will make it without reservation. Everything in your life, now and forever, hinges on how you view Jesus. Everything in your life, every detail of your life, now and for all of eternity, today, this week, and forever, hinges on how you view Jesus. Your life, your marriage, your parenting, your teenage years, your school, your dating, your work, your spending, your relationships, your emotions, your thoughts, your plans, your dreams, everything in your life hinges on having a right view of Jesus. It hinges on believing that he is fully human, that he has come in the flesh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, 
which some in the first century were denying, saying that Jesus didn't have a real human body, not really like us. Jesus is fully human and he is fully God. That Jesus is the Christ, verse two, the Messiah, God in the flesh. What we've seen over and over again in 1 John, namely chapter two, verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So to believe in Jesus is to trust in him alone to save us from our sins. So this is where the Bible speaks against any religious system that says we can in any way earn our way to heaven. Such teaching is not from God. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not from your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Our works are evidence of our justification before God. They are not the cause of it. Jesus alone is able to save us from our sins. And he alone rules as Lord of our lives, which is the whole point of 1 John. Jesus doesn't just cleanse us of sin, he changes our lives such that we begin to walk as he walked. We love like he loves. We laid out our lives and love for others, what we saw last week. So come back to the statement earlier. Everything in your life now and forever hinges on how you view Jesus. If you do not believe Jesus is fully human and fully God, You are banking your life on false teaching and you are on a road that leads to eternal separation from God. If you do not believe Jesus alone is able to save you from your sin, his death alone can cover over your sin, then you will spend your life trying to earn the favor of God, never able to do so. You will never have the certainty of eternal life because you have made it dependent upon you in your sinfulness instead of Jesus in his righteousness. And if you do not believe that Jesus alone rules as Lord over your life, then you will date and do marriage the way you want, parenting the way you want, school and work the way you want. You will spend your money, live your life the way you want, and you will miss the wonder and the joy and the love of a life completely submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Everything in your life today and forever hinges on how you view Jesus. Is he just a man to you? He's just a distant God to you? Is he just a get out of hell free pass so you can Know you're okay in heaven while you live for yourself on earth? Or is he the Lord of your life? And the answer to that question changes everything about your life now and forever. God is saying in his word right now, trust in the truth about my son. Test everything you hear, everything you think. Make sure it aligns with the truth about who Jesus is. Trust in the power of God's spirit. So this is where John says in verse four, little children, Speaking here to Christians, to followers of Jesus who put their trust in the truth about Jesus, he says, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The word greater there literally means stronger. So see this Christian follower of Jesus in this spiritual war that you and I are a part of, the very spirit of God is living inside of you. John left off in the last chapter, chapter three, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit, by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So you might wonder, how do I know if I have the spirit of God in me? And the answer is what we just talked about. Do you believe in Jesus as fully God, fully man, the only savior of your sin and the Lord of your life? If you do, that belief didn't come from the world. That came from God. His spirit at work in you. His spirit's the one who opened your eyes to that reality. So in this spiritual war, you can trust in the power 
of God's spirit in you right now. You are not powerless. You have the power of the spirit of God in you. So trust in the truth about God's son and the power of God's spirit and then trust in the word God has spoken. So in the last two verses here, John compares these false teachers with the true teachers, those who are speaking the word of God. Most biblical scholars believe that when John writes we at the beginning of verse six, he's referring to himself and other apostolic eyewitnesses to Jesus given by God to give us his word. And this is huge. So how do we test the spirits? Everything we hear, everything we think, how do we test and and trust in the truth of Jesus? Power of God's spirit in us by the word he's spoken to us. So we have before us 66 books which make up the Bible, the word of God. Test everything you hear, everything you think by this book with trust in this book. While there's some good here, like we want to apply God's word to our lives, see how it relates to specific situations, encourage others, and God helps us in all kinds of ways along these lines of brothers and sisters. This word is sufficient. We do not need a movement to try to figure out more words from God as if he has not given us enough. We need to trust and obey the words we already have. We do not put our trust in supposed words from God that others might have. We put all our trust in the word of God that we have. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter six is our weapon in spiritual warfare. Not the fallible impressions or senses of man, but the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And let us not forget that cults and false teachings all come from people who claim to have additional words from God. Our enemy in this spiritual war is great, pervasive and deceptive, but our weapons are greater, so test everything with trust in the truth about Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, and in the word God has spoken, knowing ultimately that the outcome of this spiritual war is sure. So here's the beauty based on all we've seen when we wage spiritual war in our lives every day. So Christian, please hear this. We are not ultimately trying to win because Jesus has already won. If you're visiting with us today or maybe exploring Christianity, here's the big picture that we celebrate every single week we gather together, why we come together. There's one true supernatural God who created all of us have turned aside from God to our own ways instead of his ways. We have all sinned against God and we are separated from him as a result. And the penalty for our sin against him is death. Physical death and eternal spiritual death because he is a good, just, and holy God. Yet God has not left us alone in our sinfulness. He has come to us in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, who has done what no one else has ever done or could ever do. He has lived a life we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to God. He never once gave in to the temptation to sin, not once. Then, though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die. When he went to the cross, he chose to pay the price of sin that we all deserve. He died for us in our place as our substitute. What was happening physically on the cross was a representation of a much deeper spiritual reality. Jesus was taking the judgment you and I are due in our sin upon 
himself. He did that in love for us. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave having defeated sin and death. So now eternal life is available to anyone, including you today, anyone, anywhere, any of our campuses, anywhere in the world who today decides to put their faith in Jesus, to ask God to forgive your sins solely through trusting in what Jesus has done for you as Savior and Lord of your life. You put your faith in Jesus, he will forgive you of all your sin and restore you to relationship with him forever. So this is the big picture story. So when you realize that story, you realize, wait a second, spiritual warfare, the enemy has already been defeated and he will be destroyed. So this means, so when you put your faith in Jesus, you know, brothers and sisters, we are not fighting for victory. Like think of Elisha in 2 Kings. God is saying to us today, open your eyes to the reality around you. Look around you and look within you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So you're in a spiritual war every day in your home, in your workplace, in your every word, your every desire, your every thought. So in this war, Christian, trust in the truth about Jesus. Trust in the power of God's spirit. Trust in the word God has spoken to you and me. And know this week in all of your battles with temptation, and in all of your struggles with trials, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. And there's a big difference because we know the end of this war is already set. Revelation chapter 12, verse nine through 11, listen to this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. One day Jesus is coming back. He's going to hurl the adversary and all his deceptions before us and accusations against us into an abyss. And we are going to live with the one true supernatural God, free from sin and suffering and death for all of eternity. Live with that confidence. It's wartime now, peacetime is coming, so God help us to fight spiritual battle with faith from this day until that. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the king who has conquered sin and death and has made eternal life possible for us now and forever. So Jesus, we believe this about you. God, I pray even now, these moments, there might be some, might be many who believe in you, who have not believed in you before. God, I pray your spirit would open eyes, truth and the love of Jesus. People would put their trust in you even right now and that all who have put their trust in you would know that greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. We would live out of the overflow of the victory you have given us in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trials. You would give us trust in you. You would guard us from deception, discouragement. You'd help us to trust in your son, your spirit, and the word you've spoken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.